0: to wait for the father who had promised. What he said, you heard of me, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him saying, "Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel?" He said to them, "It is not for you to know times of epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you." And you shall be my witness, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. After this, and after this, he said, (laughs) and after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky?" This is Jesus, who has been taken up from heaven, taken up from you into heaven. Wait, what? This is Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in G- just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Alejandra. Well, I want to say it's a delight to get to be back with you at uh, Wallenstein Bible Chapel. I think I got to be here last, I don't know, November, December, and uh, just have been Uh, quite impressed by just the life and vitality that this congregation has. So have a high regard for your pastor, Pastor Gary and his team. And I'm also thankful you have welcomed in, as Gary said, a couple of our staff from Heritage College and Seminary. Uh, Dan and Heather Lynn Schell and Godfrey and Veronica Thorogood. And Dan and Heather Lynn are going to be out by the table. I'll be out there. So if you want to know more about the college or about the seminary, we're about 40 minutes from you. And uh, there's a host of options of ways that you can go deeper in your training or maybe God's calling you to step into some further ministry. We'd love to talk to you if that's you. So when I say Hershey's, you think... Right, that's why you should sit on the front two rows, I think, if you're really thinking that. Right, Hershey's chocolate. We think of kisses, we think of a host of other chocolate goodies. But did you know that Hershey's is more than chocolate? There's also a Hershey's School. Back in the early 1900s, Milton Hershey, who was the founder of the company, started a school. He and his wife, Catherine, couldn't have any children of their own, so he started a school for needy children. It was called the Hershey Industrial School for Orphan Children. And on the first year they opened it, on their family farm they had four kids, four boys. Today, there are over 2,000 boys and girls in the Hershey School. When Milton and Catherine died, they gave all of their fortune into a trust fund that pays for the school. So all the kids that go there, K-12, to receive a full tuition scholarship. Some of them live on campus, and their room and board is covered. And there even are university scholarships available for some of the kids who graduate from the Hershey School. Pretty sweet deal, right? Well, back in the late 1990s, things got a little bittersweet at the Hershey School. You see, some of the alumni weren't so happy with what they sensed was the current direction of the school. They questioned why the uh, board of directors had just authorized the spending of millions of dollars to modernize and centralize the campus. And they questioned why there was still so much money in the trust fund and not more kids in the school. One of the previous grads was quoted as saying, what's going on there now is not what he would have wanted. Not what Hershey would have wanted. What's going on there now is not what he would have wanted. Now when I first read that story, it made me aware and reminded me of a danger that's called mission drift. Mission drift. You've heard that phrase? The idea of mission drift is you start moving away from the original purpose of the organization. It often happens very gradually, incrementally, imperceptibly. But eventually, what happens to an organization is that it starts to shift and drift away from why that organization was started. It can happen in schools, in the Hershey School. I have to be aware of that at the school that I lead. You know, it also can happen in churches. You know, mission drift can happen in churches. Churches can drift away from what the founder of the church wanted. How do you keep a church on mission? How do you keep a congregation like WBC clearly on mission? Well, one of the ways you do that is what you're, being, you're doing right now. Pastor Gary and the team are saying, let's go back and come again and remind ourselves what is our mission as a church and today I get a chance to remind you both individually and collectively both as you as a person and you as a congregation on the mission that God has given you at least a big part of the mission which in the parlance that you're using here is to reach all for Christ today I want to show you that that's part of the mission that we've been given your church has it my church has it Every church that's going to be true to the founder's vision, to what Jesus wanted, is going to be on mission to reach all for Christ. And to remind you of that, we're going to look at the passage that Alejandro read for us, Acts chapter 1. We're in verses 1 through 11, but we'll really target verse 8, which reminds us of the mission that we have. I know that we've prayed, but would you allow me now, as we open God's word, to pray for myself? as i speak and for each of us as we receive that the lord would use his word in a potent way in our hearts father we confess that we are people who are prone to wander that can happen to us in terms of our own holiness but it can also happen to us in terms of our own focus on what we're supposed to be doing as as christians as followers of jesus but also as congregations today i'm praying for wallenstein bible chapel as they refocus in on their mission their and the vision that you have for them today use your word to keep any mission drift away and to focus their hearts their minds their energies their money on what jesus would have wanted and i pray this in his matchless name amen so in acts 1 verses 11 we're told what happens in the month and a half after easter So in the month and a half after Jesus is raised from the dead, he spends time with the disciples, convinces them that he is truly alive and well, he teaches them some things, and then as they watch, he ascends into heaven. He's taken up into heaven. Which means that verse 8 is the last recorded words of the Lord Jesus before he went back to heaven. Those would be the words he wanted ringing in their hearts, ringing in their ears because they were the mission that he was giving to them today i want us to focus in on a well-loved and well-known verse but to say if we're going to stay on mission this is what jesus really wanted i want to show you at least three things from acts 1 8 that help keep mission drift away from wbc that keep you on mission and if you've been around the church for a while these will not be new but boy they're important So let me remind you again of what Jesus, our founder, really wants for your church, for all of us. The first one, coming out of verse 8, it's pretty clear. I'd put it this way. Jesus wants us to witness for him. Right? That's pretty obvious in verse 8, that Jesus wants us. What he really wants is for people like you and me, followers of him, he wants us to be witnesses for him. Jesus wants us to witness for him. Look at verse 8, you'll see it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now, remember, this is said, it seems, quite quite, uh, shortly before Jesus leaves. The last thing he says to them is, you will be my witnesses. So, Jesus, what do you want from your disciples? It's pretty clear you want them to be witnesses. So what does that mean? What do you think Jesus meant when he said, you will be my witnesses? Well I think we get an answer that's kind of uh, unusual but helpful in the book of Acts. You see a few chapters later we read of some people being witnesses for Cornelius. If you flip keep your place here and go to chapter 10, if you look with me in chapter 10, I'm going to show you an interesting verse. Chapter 10 records how some men come down from Caesarea and they go to Peter And they talked to Peter about Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, and they witnessed for Cornelius. Look at uh, verse 22. I'm reading out of the ESV. It says this, chapter 10, verse 22. And they, these are the men, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Do you see that little phrase, who is well-spoken of? That's the same Greek word that's translated witnesses. In fact, you could translate this verse, who is being witnessed by the uh, people, the whole nation of Jerusalem, the whole nation of Judah, the whole nation of Israel. They are witnessing about him. What does that mean? It means they're speaking well of him. He's spoken well of, he's witnessed to by everyone else now if that's the definition of witnessing is to speak well of someone to tell what you know is true like here they say he's an upright man he's a God-fearing man then if that's what it means to witness to speak well of you and I witness all the time we witness for our mechanic right if you got a good mechanic I had a good mechanic named Mike I witness for that guy all the time people say you know a good mechanic and I'd say yeah looking for a mechanic Go go to my friend Mike the guy's honest if he tells you something's broken it's broken what was I doing I was telling what I knew to be true I was witnessing for Mike if you got a good contractor who's fixed who's done a reno in your kitchen somebody says wow who did this you say let me tell you it was this guy named Tim if you need if you need good work done done and right the first time let me tell you I'll give you a number for Tim what are you doing you're witnessing for Tim you're telling what you know to be true now back in chapter 1 verse 8 Jesus says that's what I want you to do for me you will be my witnesses you tell people what you know to be true about me you speak well of me now for the first disciples they knew what that meant they were going to go around telling people let me tell you about jesus wow do you know about jesus he's the son of god he came and lived among us this was fresh history for them like he lived he walked these streets in jerusalem And our leaders, they put him to death, but death couldn't destroy him. He came back to life. He was raised to life. And now he offers forgiveness and new life. They're witnessing for Jesus. They were telling what they knew to be true about him. And that's what Jesus wanted. You will be my witnesses. So here's my question for you. Do you think we're still doing what the founder wanted us to do when it comes to talking about Jesus, speaking well of him? Are we being witnesses for him? Here's, here's a probing question that I ask myself, and I'd ask you to personalize this question. It's a bit convicting, but I asked myself this question. If everyone in the church witnessed for Jesus as much as I do, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Like if I was the standard, like my level of witnessing was everyone else's standard, Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Because Jesus wants me, he wants us to be witnesses for him. It's pretty clear, right? That's our mission. But I've been around church world enough to know that some of us hear that and go, well, I know that's what he wants, but I I don't think I can do that. I'm not really good at doing that. I'm not really bold, I'm not courageous. I kind of... My tang gets all tangled up when I try to talk about Jesus and things go sideways. I don't think I got all the answers. I'm not sure I could do that. Well, Jesus knows you. He knows me. He knew his followers. He knew they would struggle. And that's why he promised them help, which brings me to the second thing I want you to see from verse 8. See, the first thing is Jesus wants us to witness for him. But if you go back to chapter 1, verse 8, you see the second thing, which is this. Jesus wants us to witness for him in the Spirit's power, right? In the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to do this, and he says, and I'm going to give you help so that you can. That's what verse 8 says. Look at it, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Jesus knew that the first followers would need help. I mean, after the resurrection, they all went into a room and locked the doors, right? They were frightened. They knew that things were hostile out there. Like the religious leaders had just killed their leader. So they bolted the doors. You read in John 20 on resurrection night, they're all locked down. A week later, they're locked down. Peter who was their leader, had just denied Jesus three times. Remember, right before the crucifixion and the charcoal fire there in the courtyard of the high priest? Peter's there saying he had a chance to witness for Jesus, and he did the opposite. He kept saying, no, actually, I don't know the guy. You got the the wrong guy. It's not me. I'm not one of his followers. He had done just the opposite. And now Jesus is telling them, I want you to go be my witnesses, and they're probably looking at each other and going, we don't have a real good track record on this, Jesus. Jesus. And he knew that. And that's why he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you'll be my witnesses. See, he'd already been talking to them about the Holy Spirit. The verses that Alejandro read for us, if you go back to verse 4 and 5. Luke records that while staying with them he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said you heard from me for John baptized you with, with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he actually says to them look guys, go, don't go anywhere yet. Just stay here until the promise of the Father the Holy Spirit comes. It's coming soon. And then in verse 8, he says, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's precisely what we read happen in the book of Acts. Don't you love the book of Acts for this? I mean, you get to chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit comes on these believers, and what do they do? They witness for Jesus, right? Chapter 2, the Spirit comes, and they speak. Now, when we read chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, sometimes we get all focused in on the theological issues that are raised in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, right? We start talking about the meaning of tongues and what, what's all about tongues, or we talk about the start of the church. Was this the official start? Those are important things to wrestle with. But can I remind you in the flow of the book of Acts, the promise of the Spirit is linked to power for witnessing. Luke's point is to say the Spirit came so they could do what Jesus wanted. And that's precisely what happened. The Spirit comes, chapter 2, verse 11, the people start to speak out, declare the mighty works of God. And then Peter gets up. Peter, the same guy that had said, No, no, not me, I don't know him, I don't know him, honest. Peter gets up in front of all these people and powerfully tells them about Jesus. How did that happen? How did Peter go from the guy in the courtyard to the guy on the day of Pentecost? We're just talking a few months. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit enabled him to do what naturally he didn't do so well. And if you go through the book of Acts, you find that over and over again, the Holy Spirit fills people and they are witnesses for Jesus. Let me just show you a couple of them. Turn with me to chapter 4. And look at verses 8 through 12. Chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. A few days later, after Pentecost, Peter and John are arrested. They had healed a crippled man. They're hauled in before the Sanhedrin. These are the same guys who had sentenced Jesus to death. They're the ones who said, let's crucify him. So Peter and John now have to talk to those guys. And look what happens, verse 8. Then Peter, now catch this. Look what it says, verse 8. I want you to see it. Then Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's important. Peter's on trial. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens next? Said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you, by which we must be saved. Wow, Peter has not backed down. How did that happen? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. You see the link? The power for witnessing comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you go down to chapter 4, verse 31, after they leave the Sanhedrin, they've been commanded, no more talking about Jesus. So they go to the church, and the church prays. And look at verse 31. I love this verse. Chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all, here it is, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you see the link again? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak with boldness. Now, you may hear all of that and go, okay, I need that. I need the Holy Spirit's filling so that I can actually be a witness for Jesus. That's what he really wants. I'm going to need the same thing that they needed. How does a person receive the filling of the Spirit, the empowerment of the Spirit, so that you can speak out for Jesus like Peter did and like the believers did? Well, I've wrestled with that question for a while and I studied the book of Acts and here's the summary that I would come up with, real simple summary. If you study the book of Acts, The believers were filled with the Spirit for witnessing, first of all, after they prayed, and secondly, as they obeyed. It seems to be like that's a pattern. They pray, they say, Lord, we need it. That's the first thing they do. And then they they obey. They go out and they're in these situations and the Spirit of God just fills them and they speak after they prayed as they obeyed. They get on their knees and then they step out in faith. And brothers and sisters, I think the same thing's true for you and for me. You want to do what Jesus really wanted. You want to be a witness for Him. The power of the Spirit comes after you pray and as you obey. There's a step of faith, but it starts with stopping and saying, "Lord, I need this. I need Your help. I'm going to have to ask You." Let me tell you how our church in Ottawa found this lesson really life-giving. Uh, before I was at, before I came to Heritage ten years ago, I spent fourteen years, almost fifteen. Linda and I served in Ottawa at a church called the Metropolitan Bible Church. We loved our time in that church, and we sensed that God wanted our church to be witnesses for Jesus in the capital region. So here's what we did. We started talking to the people on Sundays, and we said, here's what we're gonna ask you to do. We're gonna ask you to identify three friends, people you know and love that don't yet know and love Jesus. And we gave them little cards, and they could write out the names of their friends. And then what we want you to do is two things. First, pray. Pray for them. Pray that this this year, God would work in the hearts of those three friends. Look, you already know and love them. You want them to know and love Jesus, so pray for them. And then secondly, ask God to give you an opportunity to speak to them. And we even gave everyone, we put them in the bulletin one Sunday, these little uh, tracks from Billy Graham Association called Steps to Peace with God. We said, this is a seed. We want you to plant it in the life of somebody you know and love. So we did that. And then our youth pastor said, well, we should, we should do something to celebrate when the Lord actually touches people's lives and we see people come to faith. We said, well, what do you think we ought to do? And he said, well, in Luke 15, it says that um, there's a party in heaven whenever one person turns to Jesus. The angels rejoice. So we had to do something that celebrate. So what do you think? And He goes, why don't we put a balloon up on the platform every time we hear of somebody in our congregation has one of their friends that comes to know Jesus. And the balloon will be like, Here's a celebration. We're celebrating, they're celebrating in heaven. So we said, great idea. So we told the congregation. So you have your three friends. You're praying and you're obeying and if the Lord touches any of their lives, email us, let us know. We'll keep, we'll keep a, a record so we can follow up. And on Sunday, we'll put a balloon on the platform. It was, a, it was such an exciting thing. You know what started to happen? We started having balloons on the platform almost every week. People would come in and they would tell me, the first thing I do is look and see, do we got any balloons today? Because they want, and then we would say, we'd say like, today we got two balloons. One is a junior high student that was on our retreat last weekend. And one is a coworker of one of our friends. And people would usually clap and we'd say, yeah. And then I remember some guy came up to me afterwards and he goes, man, I want one of my friends to be a balloon. And it had to be something that we started talking about. At the end of the year, we tallied him up. There was a host of balloons. And on the first Sunday of the next year, we had this big bouquet of balloons on the stage. And we did a little video called Each Balloon Has a Name. And we had videos of the people who had trusted Christ standing there holding the balloon. And that guy would say, hi, I'm Larry and I'm a balloon. And we would, and the church was just alive with and People started to say, I can do that. I will pray, and by God's grace, I will obey. And we started to see people who never thought they could have the joy of witnessing for Jesus in the power of the Spirit. That could happen here. So Jesus wants us to witness for him. He wants us to witness for him in the power of the Spirit, but there's one more thing I need to show you from Acts 1.8. It's an important thing. I'd put it this way. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus wants us to witness for him in every place, right? In every place. He wants us to witness for him here and there. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. You'll see it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus talks to this small group of people and he says, I want you to start here, but don't stop here. Start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, that's kind of cross-cultural, and then go to the ends of the earth, tell them all about me. And that's exactly what they did. In fact, that's really the outline of the book of Acts. You read Acts chapter 1 about through verse 7, they're witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea. Acts chapter 8, they start going to Samaria Then you get to Acts 13, all the way to the end of the book, Acts 28, and they go to the ends of the earth. They start sending out missionaries. They do what Jesus wanted. Now let me ask you, do you think we finished the job yet? And I'd say, no, it's 2,000 years later and the job's still not done. There are still people in our Jerusalem, in our Judeas, our Samarias, and there are still people at the end of the earth that don't know about Christ. You may know that we have about 8 billion people living in our world today, 8 billion. And of that 8 billion, 2 billion of them are designated as frontier people groups by mission experts, they're called frontier people groups. Frontier people groups are are groups of people, they usually share the same language and culture, they can live in the cities, they can live in the countryside, but frontier people groups, get this, have no church in their culture they have no living church they have no indigenous church in fact frontier people groups have less than one-tenth of one percent of christians in their whole people group which means that most people will live and die and never know a christian like people in these groups they'll live and die and they'll never even meet a christian because there's no churches there and there's over 5,000 of these people groups. You can see on the map there, all the little tiny dots where they're located. In fact, the next slide shows you the majority of these people groups, frontier people groups, are located in the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia. Here's a, this is a map of the world, and it's bloated to show where are the frontier people groups. You can see how they are in, in the Middle East, you can see how they are in South Asia, in fact, the next slide shows you the, most, the largest number of frontier people groups and the largest frontier people groups are found in India today. They need to hear the gospel, and unless somebody goes to them, they won't. Because there's no Christians around them. So someone's going to have to relocate. Oh, yes, I know we have media, and I'm thankful for that. There could be broadcasts. But if you're going to have a flesh and blood conversation, someone's going to have to go from here to there. Someone's going to have to say, those people group need to hear about Jesus. Now, I know that those numbers, 2 billion people, 500,000 people groups, it's hard to get your head and heart around those numbers. They're just huge numbers. How do you start to care about that? Many years ago, Linda and I were working with young adults in California in California right out of seminary, and I saw a little video, low-tech video, that made a high, high impact in my life. It was a story of some North American kids that did a summer mission trip to Papua New Guinea, which is like the ends of the earth, right? Papua New Guinea is on the other side. And it's the ends of the earth. And these kids had gone over, and they were in a tribal area of Papua New Guinea, helping the missionaries for a couple of weeks and just getting to know the place. And while they were there, they, they actually they have these you know, photographs, and they actually have a little simple recording of what happened. There were some tribal leaders from another tribe across the mountains, several hours away. Who had walked all the way to their village because they knew there was a missionary there and they'd heard that this village was being changed by the gospel and these leaders from another tribe come there and they say this please send somebody to our village our little children our old people they can't walk all the way from their village to your village so send somebody there and and the North American kids that are listening—they don't speak the tribal language. So they don't know what's going on, but they, the missionaries translate. He said he's asking us to send somebody. He says, "Come back tomorrow. We'll tell you what we can do." The, the tribal leaders come back the next day, and the missionaries say, "We would like to do that, but we have nobody to send. Like we got nobody." And one of the men from the other tribal leaders—he's dressed in all these feathers and regalia. He pulls out of his belt this fistful of little sticks and he starts saying a word and he throws down a stick. He says a word and he throws down a stick. Says a word and the kids, the North American kids are going, what, what's he doing? And the missionary he tells him, you hear him say this, he says, he's saying these are the names of the people in his tribe and he's saying, this is so and so, they're going to perish if they don't hear. This is so and so, they're going to perish if they don't hear. And the video was called Each Stick Had a Name. And what happens next is remarkable. Here's this North American college-aid kid who's watching this, and he starts to cry. He starts, starts to break down, he just chokes up, and he goes, I gotta go back and tell people. Like, there's people that are gonna die and they don't know about Jesus, and suddenly those big numbers became personal for him. And he realized this is somebody's grandma and grandpa, this is somebody's kid, this is somebody's wife, Every stick had a name. I would hope that we would be people that care about those in our Jerusalem. Yes, that I'm looking for my three friends. But you know what I would hope for Wallenstein Bible Chapel? Is that God would also break your hearts for the frontier people groups who don't have a friend to tell them. there are no Christians around them, and that you as a church would say how how can how can we not do our part to make sure that some of those people who've never heard the name of Christ get to hear about him because it's what Jesus would have wanted right he made it clear he wants us to witness for him and the power of the spirit in every place how's that going to happen practically what's what's it going to take for wbc to be engaged in that to be all in to reach all for christ to be part of that well i think it means you got to start with jerusalem i think it does mean that like your three friends who who are your three friends why don't you do that why don't you start praying specifically for some friends and then saying this year lord i'm praying you're going to give me the opportunity to talk up jesus to them like you do that but then you say and lord give us as a church the heart for the people that still don't know the ends of the earth people i told you about our church in ottawa how it started to move that we cared about our jerusalem let me close by telling you how it also moved people to go to the ends of the earth there's a family in our church up in ottawa named the malies it's six kids she was a teacher jim was susan was a teacher Jim was an IT guy, geologist and an IT guy. They came to a mission conference long before I got to the church, and they heard about people that had never heard. In fact, they heard about people in Papua New Guinea who had never heard. And at the end of that missions conference, as the closing night, Jim told me, I talked to him last night about this, he said he and Susan, they just looked at each other and said, we got to go. They walked down at the front of the church. They were in the balcony. And they came all the way down to the front at the end of the night and said, If the Lord will send us, we'll uproot and we'll go. And God did that. They took their six kids. The youngest was 11 months old at the time, the oldest was about 11 or 12. They took their six kids to Papua New Guinea. Linda and I had a chance a number of years later when we got there. We took our family and we went over to visit them. We got to see the people in Papua New Guinea. And here were Jim and Susan. Who had uprooted from a stable life, good careers, but somehow God blew up into their heart the fact that there were people who would live and die, never know about Jesus, and they said, maybe we could be part of that, and you know what it did for the Met, the church, when they start sending out their own people, people that they know and love, like Jim, like he's one of our guys, right, he's, he's an IT, IT guy, and Susan, she's a teacher, and suddenly they're going to Papua New Guinea, You know what happened? The church started to say, no, we care about Papua New Guinea. We're praying for Papua New Guinea. Wouldn't it be amazing if God took some of the people at WBC, put it in your heart to say, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm the one that needs to uproot and go to one of these frontier people. See, if you summarize Acts 1-8, you'd put it this way. Jesus wants us to witness for him in the power of the Spirit, in every place. Don't drift from that mission. Stay on it. That's what Jesus would have wanted. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that I know I'm among people who take your word seriously, who take it literally, who take it personally. And I'm asking that you would use the words of your Son, our founder and our Savior, to once again put us on mission, and keep us on mission with what he would have wanted. And I pray this, asking for the help of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.
2: Gary, I don't know what you've done inviting me up here after a sermon like that. 22 and a half years ago, This church sent us <clears throat> because people live and die without hearing of the goodness of Jesus. Two billion people are going to live and die, and more are going to live and die without hearing of or understanding anything about the goodness of Jesus. As we were in our communion time this morning, we looked at Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 talks about the one who was made lower than angels, who's now crowned with glory and honor. he suffered death in bringing sons and daughters to glory. And he goes on to talk about, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. My challenge to myself and to you, I would say this morning, Of those two billion people, how many of those two billion people would you want to even call your brother and sister? Because I know that some of them live in parts of the world, live in cultures that are completely foreign to us. They are created in the image of God. Jesus came and died for them. And there is no one, no one to tell them. John Piper makes the comment he says that mission exists because worship doesn't. Chris Wright talks about the fact that our mission is nothing less than participating with God in his grand story until he brings it to its ultimate conclusion. It's not about us trying to finish something. It's about God working through the course of history. And you know what? He has invited us into that. What a tremendous opportunity. What a tremendous responsibility. I would argue with Chris Wright. God doesn't have a mission for his church. He is a church for his mission. God has called us. God is on the move. God, from eternity past to eternity future... It is God that is at work and we have the opportunity, we have the privilege to join in with what he is doing. What an amazing privilege we have. Fathers, we come to you this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to come to die for us. Father, we thank you that we here have had the opportunity to hear, to know, to understand, to be taught, to be discipled. Father, what an amazing gift that is. Father, we're also conscious that many of us live and work with people who know something of the Christian message. But for many of them, what their understanding is, is distorted. But Father, we also know <clears throat> that there are people in the world around us. Some closer to us, some a long way away. Some that maybe look and act similar to us some that may be in cultures very distant from ours, who do not know you. Father, you have called us and you've given us that privilege to be witnesses. Father, in the places where you find us, may we seek to be witnesses in your power. Father, may we pray, may you give us Open our eyes to the people that you would have us to be witnesses to. But Father, let us seek your power to go through us, and that we would then act on that and we would obey and we would share the truth and the goodness of Jesus with those people that we come in contact with. But Father, may we also open our eyes to the reality of the world around us. Father, two billion people, those are the ones that in some ways have no chance at present. But Father, there's billions more who lack the opportunity to be in a discipling relationship with someone else to help them truly understand who the God of the universe is and the reality and the gift of Jesus Christ. Father, open our eyes to the things that we can do in the places that you have given to us. Father, I thank you for this church. Father, I thank you for the history of missions from this church. But Father, I pray that we would not be a church that rests on its laurels just because we did it in the past. Father, do we know why we sent missionaries? Father, I thank you for the commitment of this church to stand with Andrea and I for 22 and a half years. But Father, I would ask that you would give each one here, give the leadership of this church clarity of vision and boldness to approach the gifted and others in the, the gifted in a variety of respects within this conversation and say, have you thought about going to serve? Father, give us boldness. Father, thank you for the tremendous opportunity that we have to be called sons and daughters of the Most High. Father, we thank you. Father, with that privilege comes a responsibility. May we hold that well. May our mission not drift, but may we be committed to continuing to participate in what you are doing in the world. And may we continue to be sensitive to that. Father, we thank you. We praise you. And I want to le- close us with the words of Psalm 67. They're a psalm of praise. They're a psalm of blessing about what God's desire is. May God be gracious to us and bless us And make his face shine on us, so that your ways may be known on earth. Your salvation, where? Among all peoples. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the nations with equity. And guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, he blesses us. May God bless us. Why? So that all the ends of the earth may fear him. As we go into our week, God has called us and given us a privilege to be a blessing in our places of work to those three people that you're going to pray for. And may I encourage you to think about the places on the earth that God is burdening you to pray for because people live and die without hearing of him. Thank you, and have a blessed week.